join me in prayer. I want to just um, concentrate for a moment about some of the things that are happening among our faith family and those in the family around the world. Join me in praying, if you will. Father, we pray for those Christians who are dealing with really cataclysmic events in their lives, in oppressive people, in oppressive circumstances and conditions, and it includes people in Afghanistan and Burma and China and India, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, so many other places like Sudan that have just been inundated with evil people with an intention to do harm to you, your name, and your people. We take refuge in the fact that you win, that you are the victor, and that your church cannot be stopped. And though the gates of hell may open wide and the horde of the enemy may come against us, there is nothing that can prevail against your church. And we know one day you're coming in your glorious victory and you will rectify all things. So we bless you for that. So we pray for deliverance for our brothers and sisters and that their courage would be given in Christ and the peace of Christ would rule and reign no matter the hurt and the chaos that surrounds them. We pray for their faithfulness and their steadfastness that the name of Christ might be bold in its proclamation. We pray for our president and the leaders who are making decisions. We pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment to be given and for our military personnel that you would protect them and give them sharp awareness and skill above the norm and that they would be aided by your hand that they might avenge those who are innocent. We pray for the spiritual aptitude of our military, that they would move towards obedience to Jesus Christ. Lord, we're reminded that you said when you were reviled that you did not revile in return. And when you suffered, you did not threaten, but you continued to trust yourself in the one who judges perfectly. And so, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world and even some in this country who are enduring that they would rest in the truth that you proclaim, vengeance is yours, you will bring it about. And so we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So we want to continue to pray for our family around the world and for our faith family who endure sickness and weakness for the caregivers that minister to them. Uh, some of them are watching our streaming services right now, and we're encouraged by that. We pray that you'll be encouraged by your faith family who loves you and wants to connect with you in any way possible. Now, this morning, we're going to tackle 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And although it is a straightforward passage, pretty easy to understand, it requires us to think about a complex and very hurtful subject the subject of slavery. And so I want to just mention that slavery more than likely causes you and me to think about the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, the history of the Americas and even beyond throughout the world, but specifically the New World where it was estimated that 12.5 million Africans disembarked into North America and the Caribbean and South America 
And of course, the damage to those communities in which they were stolen from and the individuals themselves and their families and the countries, that that hurt and that suffering is just staggering for them. And the repercussions of that are continuing to be felt even to this day. Forced slavery is a blight on worldwide history. And it is a blight that continues today. The UN estimates that some 40 million people are forced into slavery even today. 25 million of them are forced into hard labor. 15 million forced into marriages. It's staggering to consider that one quarter of all those who are enslaved in the world are children. Slavery comes at the hands of broken people living in a very broken world, and that kind of oppression was not as God originally designed creation to be, but because of the fall of mankind and the waywardness of mankind, slavery continues. I can tell you with all certainty that Jesus Christ hates forced slavery. In fact, when Jesus came on the scene to minister among us here on earth, he began his ministry with this proclamation that he would set at liberty those who were captive and set at liberty those who are oppressed. The freedom that the saints of God experience today is spiritual. Through our salvation, we have freedom from the bondage of sin and death. But however, there is coming a day where we will experience freedom in its full measure, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Every part of our lives will be set free in Jesus Christ. It is certain that in heaven you'll find no chains and no locks for God banishes all enemies. And in heaven the saints of God are grateful to eternally belong to him there. At the time in which Paul is writing this letter to Timothy there in Ephesus, he is dealing with slavery. It's very much part of the culture in which Timothy is living Historians estimate that slaves made up of one-third of the population in cities in the Roman Empire, such as Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. And more than likely, there were many people who were in the Ephesians church who were dealing with slavery. Maybe they were slaves or they were associated with the slave trade, or maybe some of them were even masters. Now, it's hard for us to think of slavery in any other way than the 17th through the 19th centuries of the history of Americas as we know it, and the harshness of slavery and the racial uh, hatred and uh, tension and uh, movement against forced slavery in our history. But in the first century, in the Near East, slavery was very different. It wasn't necessarily race-driven. It was not always forced. And it was often merely an economic decision, either on the part of the slave or on part of the master. Some people actually would sell themselves into slavery if they had a heavy debt that they could not pay or they had a lack of provision for their families or themselves. They would merely indenture themselves, sell themselves for the gain of the master. In fact, that happened often. I'm, I'm not suggesting that that is, is a good way to do things, but it was the economy of the day in the first century. 
Those kind of agreements were akin to the indentured service that often was evident in the colonials here in America and around the world. Some form of labor in which the person agreed to work in order to gain something, in order to have something. And I'll work for you and I will be your slave. You'll be my master and you will provide for me and my family. You'll care for me. Or at the conclusion of our agreement, I will receive this. That, that was often the way the first century slavery was, although it's not complete, completely true at that. You see examples of this like Jacob, who goes to Laban and tells him, I will work for your daughter, I'll work for seven years. And at the conclusion of the seventh year, then I want my wife and my children. That's an indentured servitude. Jacob was coming underneath submission to Laban, his father-in-law. And of course, there were two events of that. It was 14 years he ended up working for the agreement that he and his father-in-law got into. So when slaves satisfy the debt, then they were set free. Or when the labor contract ended, the compensation was given. And it might even be in the form of land. In the first century Roman Empire, about half of those who were enslaved would have their freedom by the age of 30. Now, I'm not suggesting that the ancient practice of slavery was not evil. In fact, any time where you have people that are bought or traded or sold, anytime somebody is treated in less than intrinsic in value because they're made in the image of God, it's evil. No question. Certainly slaves that ended up in the gladiator arena would verify slavery has evil behind it. I am suggesting though that slavery in the first century is very different than the slavery that you and I know about in the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. Among the Christians at Ephesus, there were slaves and freedmen and masters. Evidently the congregation actually had a large number of people that made up either the slaves or the masters. In fact, in an earlier letter, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he tells slaves and the masters who were in the church how they ought to treat each other. And it comes down to this. He says to them, you both have a eternal, an eternal master and his name is Jesus. So he's telling them how to engage in life together in this relationship. Now, you might be troubled that the New Testament does not demand social reform. Among the Roman culture, they are pretty much silent, the Bible writers. In fact, on any other measure of social reform, the Bible is mostly silent. But it's not that the apostles or the Holy Spirit or God is uninterested in social reform. The apostles, though, understood that reform falls short, and it's short-lived when reform is not rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms the hearts and minds of individuals. We're not about social reform. We're about heart reform. And when the heart is reformed, when it is made new with the truth of Christ, with the love of Christ, with the mercy of Christ, and the grace of Christ, and the presence and the nature of Christ, then that newness affects social change as people bind together to bring about a culture that is very Christocentric. The Bible doesn't attempt to move or create movements of social reform. Instead, it is... God's holy word 
And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God moves through his word to transform people. So change is effected by people who are made new in Christ, indwelled and ruled by his Holy Spirit. And people who are obedient to his word and they live in fellowship with other saints. In fact, here's the way I think this could be framed up pretty well. Slavery ends when people are no longer bound in their sin. Or death of abortion ends when women and men are born again. You see the transformation that takes place? Or injustice crumbles when people receive God's mercy. And racism is over when people of all colors unite as the family of God. Or violence stops when people submit themselves to the prince of peace. Real transformation, real reform happens as people are given a new heart and their faith is given to Christ to bring about this great holy change. So if you want to reform the world, introduce people to the one who formed the world and is transforming it by his reconciling work. Introduce them and lead them to Jesus. That's the way that we bring reform. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we've already read through this as we studied a few weeks ago, says it very clearly. First of all then, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for, and you say it with me, all people. So this is the direction of the gospel. It's for all people. He wants the gospel to move among and transform all people. So here Paul is saying to Timothy and the church at Ephesus, make sure you're praying with supplication and intercession and thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified, that's transformation. And the transformation comes as we engage in prayer, bringing about a gospel hope transformation to people as we minister to them in prayer. Verse 3 says, This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, say it with me, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is the direction Paul's going to. This is the direction of the Spirit of God. He wants all people to be saved. So he's saying, engage people to be reformed, transformed by the gospel through Jesus Christ. And the way that that begins is by you and me engaging in prayer. What you pray about is important to you. What you pray about, you'll be active towards. What you pray about, you'll have faith that God will bring transformation. So in all the calamity and all the chaos and all the catastrophes of the world today, make sure you and I are engaging in prayer. And where you see reform that is needed, make sure you're praying that the gospel transformation will occur in one heart at a time. And as people are coming to the transforming work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God is moving that, let it be affected by the way our culture is transformed. Now turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And in this text, Paul is addressing Christians who are slaves, telling them to advance the gospel and advance the good news of Christ, even as they hold subservient positions. So Paul is not advocating slavery, 
but he is advocating whatever position you find yourself in, advance the gospel. Use the position that you have for gospel transformation. He's not perpetrating uh, slavery. He's not advocating slavery. He's merely telling Christians, if you're enslaved, you need to use your position for the gospel. Now, in case you're a little confused about that, I want you to remember the writings of Paul to the church at Corinth. He wrote to them saying, if you can gain your freedom, you ought to avail yourself to that. If there's any way for you to have freedom, make sure you move towards that. But if you're enslaved, you sold yourself to slavery, you have a debt that you're paying, or you have a provision that your master is, is giving unto you, or even if you're forced into this, then make sure you're using the position in a way that Christ is exalted. Now that might be difficult for us because we have a filter of our own history that we cannot imagine that God would use slavery for any advancement of the gospel. But God uses everything for his glory, everything. You may be in a harsh relationship. You may be in a work environment that is not of God. God will use that work environment even as harsh as it is. God will use it unto his glory. Trust him for that. Now let's read the text. He says in the first couple of verses of chapter six, let all who are under a yoke of bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of honor. Let's pause here for a minute. I, I wanna make sure we're gonna get the terminology right. Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants. Now bond servants, servant and slave, all three of those words translated in the English Bible come from one word in the original language of the Bible, dulo, and it is from doulos, which is slave. Every time you'll get it right if you translate that slave. Now in the context, the English translators are trying to help us to gain the context by framing it a little bit uh, so that we understand, like bondservant. So a bondservant is one who has sold himself into slavery. There's, a, there's an agreement and a provision is gonna be made and at the conclusion of that, then the terms are, are ended and freedom is granted. So the context, according to the English translators of the English Standard Version are thinking that in the context, it seems that bondservant would better help us understand what that passage is saying. But if you wanna go down to the very essence of it, it's merely slave. Sometimes it's translated servant because in the context, servant makes better sense in the English. But if you go to the preface of the ESV or any other translation that you're reading, you'll probably find they're gonna mention. This word is a very important word in the scripture. And we've taken the context in mind when we try to translate that. But I want you and me to think of this as a term of slave. A bondservant would help us understand the type slavery that it is. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own master as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful, but on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
Teach and urge these things. Now, as challenging as these two verses are, here's in essence what they're saying. It's addressing in, verse, in the first verse those who are slaves and have unbelieving masters. He's telling them how to live in that relationship. And the second one, he's telling those who are slaves who have believing masters how they ought to be living in that relationship. Challenging verses, no doubt. Let's make two points of it, just from the verses themselves. Let the verses speak the points. We ought to honor those in authority over us so that God's name and teaching are not reviled. So this is about God, this is about his word, the way we engage and act. We want to make sure that he is not reviled, he is not spoken against. Instead, that he is praised and he is honored by the way we speak and live and act. So let all who are under a yoke of bond, as bond servants or slaves regard their own master as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching, the doctrine, may not be reviled. Now let me say again, Paul is not making a statement about slavery. If it were his choice, every member of the church would be availed to freedom. They would have their freedom. That's his choice. However, he gives specific instruction for those Christian slaves, directing them with unbelieving masters, that those people ought to live their life in a way that God and his doctrines are not spoken harshly against. In other words, an owner might say about his slave, he was just fine until he met Jesus. And when he started believing in the message of Jesus, everything changed about him and he is no longer a good worker for me. In fact, his attitude is totally changed. Curse be his God and curse be the teaching of his God. Paul is saying, let that not be. Let it be that your expression of life in this relationship as slave to a master, let it be that he does not revile the name of God. So those who are under a yoke live in a way that expresses the gospel well. Under the yoke is a colloquial phrase in that particular period in time. Uh, you and I can understand what it is giving as a word picture. Oxen that are yoked together or animals that are yoked together that are submissive to their master. So let's say the master is a farmer and he's back here and he's yoked the animals together and it's the master that determines what they will do, where they will go and when they will end. The oxen have no way of, I'm gonna go this way or that way. No, no, they'll be beat back into position and they'll be forced to do what they're called to do. So any of those who are under the yoke of the master he says, live in a way that you determine the master, you regard the master with honor. Now regarding somebody with honor and giving honor to somebody who is earning honor, that could be two very different things. Regarding someone with honor is a choice. I'm gonna choose, maybe that person hasn't earned your honor, but you're gonna choose to honor them because you're recognizing that your choice to honor them communicates about Christ, communicates about the teaching of Christ. Some of you are working under bosses who are not very earning of your honor. 
But in the way this passage is taught, you and I ought to say, well, that boss may not have earned my honor, but I am going to regard him or her worthy of honor so that the name of Christ might be praised. So that people would say when they walk away from this understanding of me as an employee and him as a boss or her as a boss, there's something different about that employee. That employee has joy or peace or respect or is worthy of, of some uh, commission. That, that employee is different. That's what he's wanting us to, to have. And so honor is evident in this slave's attitude or work ethic or spoken words. And he's saying, live your life before your master in a way that Christ is honored, not reviled. Now, unbelievers don't read God's word and they are not insightful to the gospel, but they do interact with us. In the workplace or in the classroom, Christians should regard those who are over them as worthy of honor. Why? Because God said to, and because God will give you blessing in that, and Christ will be more widely known because of it. Such respect reveals itself in attitudes and words and work ethic, and if we fail to live accordingly, then no boss or employer or school leader is going to ever hear our pronouncement of the gospel. So if you live in resistance to those who are in authority to you, they are not gonna to listen to your gospel. If you dishonor them, will they ever listen to the gospel that you're gonna share with them? So live your life in a way that they would be open to the transforming word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Respect those in authority over you who are family in Christ for the good of the gospel and for them. Now, again, you're talking about slaves who have masters who are Christian. And he's saying, here's how you relate to them as Christians. In other words, the slave might think, well, my owner, my master is a Christian and thereby I can get away with things that other slaves can't get away with. Or I don't have to do everything that he would tell me to do because we are brothers in Christ. And so they might think differently and Paul is saying, no, no, no. If they are a believer, you need to live your life in a way that is not disrespectful because they are part of family and you want the good for your family. Now that's just wild for us to think about in those terms because we have this, this concept of the harsh realities of our history and the worldwide history in the 17th through 19th centuries. But in indentured servitude would be very different from the envision that you and I have when we think about slavery. So we should serve our fellow Christians no, all the more because they are believers and they are beloved family members. Let's, let's just root this down to what you and I would understand today. No matter our service, if it's at work or at school or at home or in our community, no matter our service, we work for more than wages or grades or accomplishments our attitudes, devotion, and diligence must reflect what we believe about God and what we want others to know about him. And if our boss, those who are in authority over us, is a believer, we ought to work even more so that that person receives good from us because they are family. We're trusting that God is going to provide for us 
for all eternity and for today. Now, just because I say in conclusion doesn't mean we're about to end. The conclusion is rather long. Uh, but in conclusion, let me mention two things. First, our attitude, words, and actions toward those in authority over us communicate about Jesus and his doctrines. So everything we do in every position, even the most difficult positions that you have the difficult relationships in your life. You can't get more difficult than a master and a slave, right? Even in those, the way we engage people reflect what we believe about God and we want, what we want them to know about him. So Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure you're telling this. And at the end of this second verse, he's saying, and keep on telling it. This is gonna be an issue, a continuous issue. Make sure you're continuing for them to understand this. So in life positions, we must intentionally communicate and live well to the unsaved and the saved. And we have a unique opportunity when there is a master over us. Secondly, we should reject and fight against forced slavery, but embrace Jesus as master, willfully surrendering ourselves as slaves to him. You can't forego the illustration in the scripture about master and slave. This is our relationship to Christ. He is Lord, master, kurios, Christos, Christ is Lord. He is the master and we are his slaves. Now you can't disconnect from this. You can disconnect from the harsh realities of the America's history, and you can reject forced slavery, but this willfulness of recognizing Christ as Lord and us as slaves is absolutely essential. Now I'll tell you, the defining terms that Christ gives in this is radically different from the way we might perceive master and slave. Let me just open it up to you in scripture and then call you to this great relationship. In the beginning, in Luke chapter two, when the gospel is unfolding, it's just beginning to be told. You know the passage well. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now when you read Lord, you ought to read it as master. He's Christ the master, he's the Lord, he's the ruler, he's over all the sovereign. This Savior, this King, He is Lord. That's the way the Bible introduces who Jesus is. He is Lord. And if He is Lord, that means somebody is going to be His subject. Somebody is going to be His servant. And by God's grace, if you've been called and your faith is in Him, you are the one. By His grace, I am His slave. I am His servant and He is my Lord. Or Philippians chapter two, this is often used when we're introducing people to who Christ is. Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord, right? This is what everybody is moving towards whether they do it willfully in submission to him 
or they do it in rejection of him, in the end, it's all gonna, end, it's all gonna be the same. Everybody is gonna understand that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is master, Jesus is sovereign. Now, some of them are gonna recognize that removed from him in hell and others are gonna recognize that in the glories of heaven because they've been given to faith in him in this day and age. But everybody is gonna recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and they will confess it to the glory of God the Father. So he is introduced as Lord and everybody is going to proclaim and know and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now, as we're introducing people to the gospel of Christ Jesus, we often go to Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we recognize that our faith given to Christ Jesus comes with not just belief, but with the confession that Christ is Lord. And the confession is more than just with words, it is with our life. So we determine that Christ, you are Lord, we've come to that recognition by his grace, and we submit to him. So we confess with our life that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I wanna point you to the last book in the Bible to Revelation 22 might be the most eye-opening of this amazing relationship that you and I have is Jesus is Lord and we are his slaves. He says in chapter 22, verse three through five, no longer will there be anything accursed. He's speaking of heaven and as the saints of God are in heaven, no longer will there be anything accursed a curse means the opposite of blessing. So there will be nothing in heaven but blessings. Uh, this, is, this is the place we want to be, right? Where, where there's nothing afoul, nothing cursed, only blessings and only goodness and only joy are in heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and the servants, that's the same word, doulos, the slaves will worship him. But in the context, they're writing servants here, but it's, it's the word for slave. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more, and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now, let me just highlight some of the ways, <clears throat> excuse me, that Revelation is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the master. Jesus is the Lord. You see this in the text. So no longer is there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb. So the master is enthroned the supreme one, the sovereign one is enthroned and that means he's enthroned and we are his subjects. And for the saints of God, that is a glorious thing. That's a good thing because he cares for us and he provides for us and he blesses us as he's on his throne. He's not cursing, he's not uh, throwing out threats from his throne, he's not throwing out punishment from his throne. You know what he's giving from his throne? Blessings. It's a wondrous experience that Christ is on the throne with his Father and there's nothing but blessings. And because of that and because of who he is, his slaves worship him. 
And so you see Christ is on the throne and we are his servants and we'll see his face and can you get any more of the servitude than this that his name will be on our foreheads? We are marked by him. Now you might say, well, that, that doesn't sound very good that we're actually marked with God's name on our forehead. What other name would you want on your forehead than the almighty God who's the great provider and the one who is your protector and the one who has brought salvation to you and rewards you perpetually throughout all eternity. I want his name on me. I want his name not just on my forehead. I want it all over me. I want his banner over me. I want, a, I want the whole host of heavens to know I belong to Jesus. How about you? So his name is on their foreheads. And night, of course, will be no more. There's not going to be any need for any other source of light because God, the Lord, Master, God will be their light. So there's no doubt. In Revelation 22, God wants us to know over and over and over and over that he is the master. Now, what about the servants? What about the slaves? And the blessings that fall for us who are his slaves. Number one, I've already mentioned that there's not gonna be anything accursed. Nothing but blessings in that place. So we will serve in a place where only blessings flow. And in that we will worship him. It's, it's gonna be a wondrous thing for us to discover the fullness of God's glory and to see it and to worship him. And to worship him without any Hesitancy to worship him without any filters of sinfulness, to worship him without pretense, to worship him not expecting anything return because he's giving us everything already as we're joint heirs with Christ Jesus, just to have pure essence of worship. What a wonderful thing that will be. And his name is marked on us and we will see his face and when we see his face, we will be made like him in a glorious way. Now listen, I know your spirit, if you're alive in Christ, I know your spirit has been made right and Christ declares you to be holy before the Father by the redeeming work that Christ has accomplished on your behalf. He has washed the sin from you and he has made you to be pure, a spotless lamb. But I also know you still have sin in your flesh and you still have a waywardness about you. And I know that about you because I know it about me. But in that day when you and I see his face, we will be forever transformed. And you and I will be made in the wondrous, glorious way of Christ Jesus. There will not be any sin in you and me there will not be an inclination of sin in you and me there will not be a temptation that will ever be working towards you and me there will only be glory in us hallelujah to the lamb so we will have only blessings we will worship him we will be made glorious as we see him his name will be on us and there will never be a darkness there will never be a night. There will never be a mystery any longer, but there will only be glorious, transformed light that radiates through every saint of God and every aspect of every component of the universe as God has recreated it and his light fills the place with his glory. 
And then the end of that incredible section, we will reign. Now wait, I thought we were slaves. The slavery that Christ is talking about for you and me is far different from the history of the Americas. In the slavery that God allows you and me to be in relationship with him as master, it is nothing but blessing. It's nothing but worshipful. It's nothing but his markings on us and his glory given to us. It's nothing but knowing him in all of his glory and in our slavery unto him as master, he says, you will reign with me. Christ enjoys the throne of his father and you and I enjoy the throne of Christ. Now in that he says, come to me. Come to me, I'm the master. Come to me, I want you to be my slave, my servant, and you and I say, yes, Lord, I come. I surrender everything to you. I hold nothing back. I forsake everything. I deny everything. I submit totally to you. I will give my life unto you for you are the master that is glorious and right and true and pure, filled with blessings, filled with hope and glory for me. I submit to you. So he says, come. Come. And when we understand that glorious imagery, then not only will we come to him as slaves, discovering him as the master, but we'll understand in every other relationship, even the most difficult relationships in our life, we will live unto him. We will live unto his name and we will live unto his doctrines so that others might come to know him and praise him and not revile him. You say, well, what a harsh way to live. Oh, there's a different day coming. There's a different day coming. A day that will not be marked with sin and despair and hurt and pain and suffering and forced slavery. There's a day of freedom coming. And the freedom is when you and I serve God and his son as master. Now join me in prayer. endear our heart to your word and your truth and most importantly to the Savior Christ the Lord and may it be evident in every aspect of our thoughts our attitudes our purposes our words and actions for Christ is master of all Lord of all Father, if there's some in this room who have yet to submit and surrender to you, I pray today, Lord, they will do so. And the joy of being in relationship with you as the pure, holy, righteous master will be imparted to them. Pour out your faith, Lord, as you're extending grace. Pour love and truth into us and let us receive it with gratitude and let our lives be lived in a way that would cause others to proclaim Christ and his glorious teachings and we pray this unto him in his name amen